new enhanced trilateral security partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. AUKUS. It's an unusual name, AUKUS, but it's a powerful entity. In 2021, amidst a shroud of secrecy, the new AUKUS treaty emerged onto the international stage. What began as a modest solution to Australia's wish to obtain nuclear submarines swiftly transformed into a new alliance of great strategic importance. It was Arthur Synodonis, privy to the treaty's nascent days while Australian ambassador in Washington, that participated in the formation of AUKUS. After three years in the White Oaks residence, he left the position earlier this year, replaced by Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Like Rudd, Arthur entered the position with immense political experience. A former Treasury economist, he joined the political fray to eventually become Chief of Staff to John Howard, Australia's second longest-serving Prime Minister. After a brief stint in the private sector, he returned to Parliament as a Senator, later serving in the governments of Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull. Despite the media portrayals of Arthur as a shadowy power broker of Australian Liberal politics, a conversation with him reveals quite the opposite. Born in New South Wales to Greek parents, his childhood was well accustomed to the joys of feta and olives. The Greek community and the Orthodox Church held continued significance in his life. Arthur has always been attracted to power and politics, but he is primarily driven by public service. To enact positive change in society, he believes you should not be afraid to take the risk of getting muddy. When he called us for this interview, he had just landed in Sydney from Dallas. His luggage had been lost and he suspected an incoming cold. Completely unfazed, he cheerily chatted with me about his upbringing, political experiences and his time in Washington, as well as the insights into the formation of AUKUS. Arthur, thank you for joining us today. Let's start off by hearing a bit about your upbringing. Well, thanks, Hugh, and great to be with you. I grew up in Newcastle in um, Australia, which in those days was a steel city and a big coal port. It's still a big coal port, although it's transitioning now with the clean energy revolution. My parents were Greek. My father was a merchant mariner. He'd been on the ships in the Pacific during the war. And then in 1945, he decided to emigrate to Australia to East Sydney, in fact. I think in those days he was thinking he'd get into commercial fishing, but he ended up back on the ships, the bulk ships that you know, plied around the coast, bringing iron ore, uh, coal and the like from the West Coast to the East Coast. And he'd settled in Newcastle. And my, my, uh, my mother was from the same part of Greece. They were both from an island called Kefalonia in the Ionian Sea. It's, um, it's where Captain Corelli's mandolin was set, uh, which was based on a true story. Uh, during the war, the place had been occupied by the Italians, and then Germans came after, and then when the Italians decided to withdraw because they were changing sides or whatever, the, the Germans let them go and then bombed all their ships in the harbours. Uh, and so there were a lot of uh, dead Italian soldiers on the island, buried on the island, so every summer people would come over with the ferries from uh, Italy to visit the graves of Italian soldiers. It's a very picturesque island. Um, it's become quite touristy without losing, I think, a lot of its natural attributes, unlike maybe some of the islands in the Aegean. So that was my background, uh, largely uh, a working-class background. I was heavily influenced, particularly by my mother's politics. She'd been in Greece during the Civil War. So Greece went through the agony of not just World War II, but it into Nissan, fraternal civil war, fratricide, or whatever you want to call it. And um, this had made her very uh, quite conservative in her outlook, particularly when it came to communists. And, uh, and so I think she was the one who influenced me the most in terms of being more of a right of center sort of person. Uh, and but in our youth in, in Newcastle, uh, I had a brother and sister. Uh, we we grew up. Our social life in those days revolved largely around the Greek Orthodox Church. In those days, for the migrant communities, institutions like the churches were often the focal point of social life, and it was that like that for us. Um, so I grew up uh, speaking Greek before I could speak English, 
I learned English at school. And it was it was funny going to school with sort of, you know, different maybe sort of bread to other kids, maybe with a bit of feather cheese or olives on it, which I think they, they thought was a bit strange. It was still the era when Australia was digesting the sort of waves of post-war immigration from Southern Europe. And while there was no overt discrimination, you did feel that you were a bit different because, you know, the culture for so long had been um, a dominant sort of uh, Anglo sort of culture, which of course has bequeathed Australia all sorts of important institutions like the rule of law, parliamentary democracy and the like. But I did grow up feeling a bit like, well, we were a bit different because we came from a different background. I loved being in Newcastle. Uh, on one level, I had nothing to compare it against, but I look back on my childhood and I think, well, it was a pretty safe childhood. Parents were very protective, perhaps even overprotective, but a safe childhood and a safe place to grow up. Uh, you could leave the doors open in those days. Kids could play in the street. We lived a few blocks on the beach, uh, Merriweather Beach uh, and, and the, the Hamilton South area. And yeah, we were just used to having all of that. Uh, I grew up in the, the sort of rugby league era mm -hmm. of St. George. So even though Newcastle now has its own football team, the Knights, I'm still a St. George supporter through thick and thin. So look, that part of my childhood was on the whole pretty happy, really. Um, Did you feel that there was a lot of political influence at the time? Were you pushed to, to go into politics and talk uh, about it? No, no. I, I, the, the push from migrant parents was always for their kids to go into the professions. Uh, I, initially, I wanted to, to do law. And I got accepted into the law schools in Sydney, but uh, my parents wanted me to stay closer to home to begin with. So I started by doing economics at university in Newcastle, ended up doing an honours degree um, in economics. And I really got into the economics, I, I think because it, it helped to explain how the world worked. And, and also it did fused with my interest in politics. I did have an interest in politics from a young age, not necessarily dreaming of being a politician, but I thought politics, I thought current affairs were interesting and important. And so when the opportunity came up to uh, practice economics, um, I didn't see myself as going in the private sector. There weren't that many jobs for private sector economists in those days anyway. I saw it more as practicing economics in the public sector, and that's how I ended up in Canberra in the finance department. Um, so I guess I came at economics as an instrument for helping to make things better. And one of the reasons I did the honours degree was to sort of uh, particularly focus on that application of economics to sort of policy analysis. Um, and, and I think it just melded also with my interest in politics more, more broadly. I read quite a bit about politics, particularly Australian politics. I read a fair bit around biography, including political biography. I did a bit of nonfiction. I mean, uh, John le Carre, I was a big fan of, particularly. Len Dayton as well, some of the spy novels he came up with. I loved the James Bond stuff from a young age. So, yeah, it was interesting how my mind kept going to sort of government and government-related things. Any student politics at, at, at university? No, not so much. I was on the right of centre and the campus was very much a left of centre campus, so it wasn't a great place for practising politics in, in Newcastle. I mean, I know some of the other campuses, there were <clears throat> some pitch battles between left and right, but in, in Newcastle, you were massively outnumbered. So it wasn't this. I mean, uh, the main thing I did at university was join the Economic Society and do a lot of drinking, I think. Um, but I still managed to get through, uh, which was great. But yeah, I, I then had to leave Newcastle. That was a bit of a wrench. I went to Canberra to join the finance department. And the first thing that, that struck me is, where, where's the water, right? You're about an hour and a half, two hours from the water. And I thought, oh, blimey, where have I, what a place have I come to? It was also different because the buildings were a lot newer than in, uh, than in Newcastle. Newcastle, of course, had much more of a history. Went back almost to the beginnings of European settlement in Australia. And this was not something I was used to. So um, Queen Bean next door was a lot more familiar because it looked more, a lot more sort of, you know, 
like the, the the places I knew in Newcastle. So I ended up in Canberra in 1979. It was during the Malcolm Fraser era. I got a job in finance, but I wanted to go to Treasury because that's where the economic policy making was centered. And I ended up doing that the year after. And then I spent a lot of the 80s doing what, what you might describe as microeconomics. Mm. And was that a personal preference of yours? Yes and no. I mean, I had a big interest in macroeconomics and international economics, but I got into the structural stuff, the market stuff, and that, that was important because that was a time when there was a real agenda being developed around um, how do you improve the performance of the Australian economy? And a lot of that was really about how you improve the operation of market forces in the Australian economy. Uh, and that was microeconomic issues. And so I spent um, quite a bit of the 80s doing work along those lines in Treasury. And in those days, um, you know, Treasury had a reputation for having a Treasury agenda. And that agenda was very much one of market forces, competition opening up the place. A few, not blind spots, but a few areas where Treasury had reservations was the financial system, how much competition and market control, market forces control the, 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 the operation of the financial system. But, um, but I was comfortable in the Treasury because I subscribed to the overall sort of, I suppose, outlook that the, the department um, brought to things. But then things changed for me in the late 80s when I ended up in John Howard's office. Mm. And before we, we touch on to that, what were some of your influences and in your way of looking at the economy and, um, and looking for reform? Well, um, the, the economics I did at university I did both micro and macroeconomics. Uh, I was very fascinated by national economics, but I also did economic history towards the end of my degree. And economic history I really loved because um, it was really drawing from or showing the application of economics in history, examples from history of how economics was at work and helping to explain what had happened. And I enjoyed that because it helped me to sort of frame my own thinking about how economics applied in the real world, if you like. But the sort of, in those days, I would describe myself as probably a conventional Keynesian sort of economist on the macro side, believing that government could fine-tune the economy to a degree through fiscal policy and, of course, monetary policy. Um, and that was to go through a revolution, particularly in the 70s and 80s, as the influence of Milton Friedman and others started to put more focus on underlying monetary factors. But at the same time, I was really keen on the idea that while there are the macro, the macro forces at work, it was the microeconomic structure of the economy that would ultimately determine its performance, its productivity and the rest. So for me, that's why spending that time doing structural economic issues was so was so interesting and informative. Um, I, I suppose at one stage I dabbled with the supply-siders. I found that interesting, the supply-siders. But, but ultimately, that was a dead end. Uh, that was very clear. Um, but then what was really exciting is, after all the inst economic instability of the, the 70s in particular, economics really changed trying to grapple with what had happened um, particularly in terms of monetary policy. And there was quite a revolution in trying to understand the role of money in the economy. Uh, and I found that really interesting to follow. It wasn't just about the link between money and inflation, but the way monetary policy and uh, wage claims interacted, uh, the Phillips curve and all of that sort of stuff. When did you decide you wanted to take a step into the, the real political side of, of government? Well, I uh, had a friend who was working for John Howard in the 80s, and he uh, decided to move on after the 87 election. And he asked me if I was interested in working up there. And, and I'd had the interest in politics for a long time. I wasn't a member of any political party at the time, but I had the interest in politics, uh, particularly, obviously, right of centre politics. So I thought, I'll, I'll give it a go and see what happens. And it became like a second education in life in many ways, going up on up to the hill. Uh -huh. And the reason for that was you get to meet a lot of stakeholders, people seeking to influence the political process. 
you get to see the process of policy making and formulation, albeit from an opposition perspective, up close. There's, I think, the the thrill that comes from potentially being the last person that a leader speaks to before they make a decision. So being at the coalface of policy advising and policy making. And I loved the institutions. I loved the parliament. Uh, once or twice, I remember when I was first in Canberra, I would go and visit the parliament in the evening and just listen to a couple of the debates going on. I actually, you know, I, I just was drawn to the place. And this was in the days of the old parliament house. And the old parliament house was small building. So, you know, uh, off the opposition's leader office, leader's office, which wasn't very big, there was a men's room. And you could be in the men's room and you could bump into Ian Sinclair, Bill Hayden, all these other people. Like, like it was, everybody was cheap by jowl. Do you think that's not possible anymore? That that rapport you have amongst all the politicians? In the new parliament house, they, they did put in a bar, but I don't know that it quite worked the way the old non-members bar worked, where people would congregate after a sitting and they would mix. And in the old days, in inverted commas, and I'm sounding so old now, um, the politicians did mix a lot. And we find this also generations ago in Washington, that the, 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 the politicians lived in Washington, their families were based in Washington. They spent time together during the week and on weekends, and often that's how a lot of stuff got done. Um, and it was the same in the Australian Parliament. There was a, in those days, there was still, even by the late 80s, a sort of friendliness and intimacy that you don't get today. Today, you know, friendships across the divide seem to be much rarer. I wonder whether that is that, that growing division is also because of, and maybe isolation between different groups is also as the growing size of a government, the growing size and importance of parliament, meaning you have to start separating uh, its different organs. You have to start bureaucratizing it. And then often leads to an organization that becomes impersonal. Would you say that's the cause? Why do you think uh, yes. politics is now less personal than when you first found it? It's bigger. Um, politicians have a lot more staff. It is more complex. Social media has also played its part. Social media has sort of balkanized and fragmented um, the public sphere. Uh, these days you can choose what your news sources are. They can be tuned to whatever your particular biases are. So even establishing the facts and agreeing on what the problems are becomes an issue in itself. So what's the basis for a common discourse all of that has changed dramatically uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. When you had a media where it was curated through certain publications, um, okay, you could argue about the proprietors and their influence over that process, but that was a different process to what we have now. And today's process, I think, has led to a deterioration because it's facilitated misinformation and disinformation on an industrial scale and led to the sort of interference in internal political processes that we've seen in the US and in Australia, including around election time. Are you familiar with, um, uh, I mean, I imagine you would be, the, house, the, the TV series House of Cards and, and Veep. Yes. It's a favorite in our household, yes. Are you familiar with both? Sorry, what was the second one? Veep. Oh, I, I haven't watched as much, I haven't watched as much Veep um, as I have uh, House of Cards, I have to admit. Um, and before that, I really enjoyed West Wing. West Wing, okay. I have to say, just the whole, the whole fascination of being in the White House itself, because uh, no matter how many times you go there, there's still this feeling of being in this very powerful place, um, particularly if you get to the Oval Office. The reason why I bring them up is because Veep, uh, as opposed to the House of Cards, I think, present both very different views of politics and a vision of how it operates. You know, the House of Cards being much more a very calculated arena of, of grand political strategy and, and Veep often being, you know, a bit of the, the bumbling mess of mistakes. In, in your own experience, what vision do you, do you view politics through? I think it is a, it's a sausage machine. 
it, it is very much a, um, it's not necessarily pretty up close. You see human nature at its best and at its worst, including during leadership stouches. I mean, I, I'm one of those people who thinks that politics is a noble calling and that um, it's a very necessary activity, but it is a tough business. And in some ways, it seems to get tougher. And, and sort of the thing is, it's a bit like the movie camera. The movie camera always finds out your deficiencies. It's the same with politics. Um, it'll always find you out. It'll always find your weak spot or your Achilles heel. And so I don't think we should expect people who are in politics to be any, even though we want them to obviously to behave to a higher standard, um, probably than the rest of us, we shouldn't be surprised that they're, you know, frail, flawed human beings and that um, emotion will play its role as well as rational considerations. Where did you see politics at its best? I think for me personally, it was when people um, are working on something big together that they genuinely believe is in the public interest. I think that's politics at its best, or when politics acknowledges that a great wrong was done and the, and the system brings itself to, to bear on it, to acknowledge it, and to try and make things whole. So, for example, the times when the parliament has apologized on behalf of the Australian people, whether it was to the stolen generation, whether it was to others who'd been impacted in various ways by government decisions in the past or whatever, that's often been an important healing process for the victims to feel that their voice was heard and, and that the system responded. That was, that was important. Important policy work like the GST finally getting up in the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe a very prosaic thing to talk about, but that was a great piece of policy making a lot of people worked on. And that was the system pulling together from formulation of a policy to announcement of a policy to selling a policy to then getting it up through the parliament and then getting it implemented in the electorate. I mean, politics at its best is simply about getting things done, whether it's the grandest things or the not-so-grand things. It's just getting things done. I was watching a documentary about Robert Caro, who wrote the LBJ biography, which is now up to volume five, I think. And he said that he was motivated to write about politics to show how power was uh, exercised, to help people understand how it works and how it can be then used in the public interest. And his interest in LBJ was that this man harnessed, was perhaps one of the greatest harnesses of political power in American history, who tried to achieve so much, the war on poverty, civil rights legislation, whatever. He was obviously undone by Vietnam. But, you know, to him, that was politics at its best. You're taking on these big things and trying to achieve them. So we've spoken about the, the best of politics. At what points were you most disillusioned with politics and even questioned whether you should Remain there. Uh, when John Howard lost his job in 1989, um, I didn't take it personally, but um, I was affected by it because it was the first time as a result I'd lost my job. I was offered to stay on in the opposition to work for uh, John Hewson uh, with Andrew Peacock as the leader. But after what had happened, I, I didn't really feel I could be um, in there. It wasn't just going to be business as usual, given what had happened. This is one of the issues in politics. You often have to work, and I'm not talking here about Peacock and Houston, but I'm making a general point. You often have to work with people you're not necessarily getting along with in a personal sense. This is one of the things about leaders trying to control their party caucuses or their party rooms. You know, I often characterize political parties as being full of sole traders. In, you know, people who are effectively their own agents and who come together to do various things. But, you know, and, and to some extent, the collective is a bigger 
influence in the Labor Party and is in the Liberal Party, but it's always hard to control people and, and you, you don't necessarily get to choose the people you want to work with most closely. But my long-winded point is that um, at that stage, I felt like, um, no, I didn't want to stick around here. I enjoyed working for John Howard. I admired John Howard for various reasons. Um, so I left and went back to the uh, Treasury. It didn't necessarily make me disillusioned about politics as a vocation, but at that point, I just didn't want anything more to do with it. Now, have I ever been disillusioned with politics in, in, a, in a broader sense? Um, no. Politics is a necessary activity in a society, and, and it's the most important thing that we have in a society to, in a collective sense, get things done. And um, so from that point of view, that's why I think it's a noble calling. I think it's a virtuous calling, not always practiced virtually, virtuously. Um, and it attracts all sorts of people who have all sorts of motives. But frankly, most of the people I've met in political life are genuinely there because they want to make a difference. Now, you may disagree with the difference they want to make or the values they bring to the table. But, you know, this is a democracy. It's a diverse society. Not everybody's going to be just automatically agreeing with anybody, every, everybody else. So, so for me, I don't think I can ever get disillusioned with politics as a process. But there are times when it just got beyond me. What, what advice would you have for Australians and, and young people who are interested in, in, get, in engaging in politics but are maybe a bit taken aback or reluctant about the more uncomfortable nature of partisan politics or the kind of extreme behavior that I think is often portrayed in media around uh, political activity? The, the advice I always give people, particularly young people, is <clears throat> if you can choose a safe route and a risky route, take the risky route because potentially that is the more rewarding in terms of personal growth, and so on. And it's the same with politics. If you have that interest, if you've got the itch, scratch it. Uh, one of the things that someone said to me when I was weighing up to go into the Senate, he used an old, I think it was a Wayne Bennett quote, don't die with the music in you. Uh, and so my advice is, if you are interested, have a go, but understand that you've got to have a thick hide, understand that in politics, you can't be just buoyed by idealism every day. You have to be pragmatic. You have to accept that you're not always going to get your way. And you have to live with those trade-offs and, and live to fight another day. That's what being a member of a political party is about. You accept the discipline of the party. And in return, for doing that, you have a platform to pursue whatever it is you're interested in. Mm. And I think your career and trajectories really been defined by a lot of, I mean, I think for, for an outsider's view, it seems like you've done a lot of different things and done a lot of different things at very high levels. How do you think you were so capable in making these jumps so successfully and continuously? Well, um, it's for others to judge how successful or not I've, I've been, but I didn't plan any of this uh, in the sense of, waking up one day and saying, I'm going to be a politician, I'm going to be a senator, a minister, or whatever. My lucky break, in inverted commas, in terms of my individual career, was probably going up the hill to work for John Howard and establishing that relationship and then coming back to work for him when he was leader again in 95. And then through that period, which really established the platform for, my, for what it was worth, my reputation and my profile. And from there, that made a lot of the other steps fall into place. Um, on, when I left John Howard's office in 2006, after nine years as chief of staff, I felt I'd done everything I could in politics. So I, I wasn't harboring any secret desire to come back as a politician. But people knew me and I was approached by Helen Coonan when she was thinking of retiring in 2011 to take her position. So because of the Howard connection and, and, and the network that developed from that, other things then seemed to flow, including 
being a minister and a senator, uh, and ultimately uh, ending up in the ambassadorship. Now, whether I've been successful or not in objective terms, okay, I've occupied some senior positions, others can judge. What I felt in my own mind has at least been a positive of my career is that people have always sort of seen me as a trusted advisor. I think um, one of the things I brought to my time in the Howard office was that while having regards for Howard, I was not a yes man. I could put a contrary view, and we and, and in the office that was encouraged. And I think it was accepted because it came from a position of trust, of being someone who was trusted to have the best interests of the prime minister and the government at, at heart. So I think this theme of being a trusted advisor has flowed through a lot of what I did, including the time I was in the private sector when I was in banking for a while. Um, I think that was a, 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 a theme that came through. But my political career had its ups and downs. I had to stand down twice, once when I was a witness in some of the ICAC hearings in New South Wales. And secondly, when I was diagnosed with cancer and I had to sort of go. So I don't know that my political career, while it had its highs, you know, I don't know that they were extremely high and it had a few lows. But um, when I ended up in the ambassadorship, in a sense, that brought a lot of the elements of what I'd been doing before together. And uh, I ended up enjoying that job more than I expected I, I would. The Liberal Party is at a bit of an electoral low ebb uh, yep. at the moment. Uh, where do you see it, it, its future? Well, look, you, you can come at this on two levels. On one level, you can say political parties go through a cycle. They get exhausted by being in government, uh -huh. particularly if they've been in government for a while. They go into opposition and you wait for the cycle to turn. You, And if the cycle is taking too long to turn, as happened to the Liberals, in the Hawke-Keating era, you have to do things to get yourself into shape, get rid of issues that are tying you down, remove some of the barnacles, as we say, and get yourself ready to come back into government. But you can do it at a certain level, as a certain other level as well, and say, well, look, what are the structural factors at work here? There are cyclical factors, but there's also structural well, factors. So how are we appealing to the new demographics? Are we really just assuming they'll be like the old voters? And on issues like climate change, in my view, the coalition has got across the Rubicon. I mean, in a democracy, yes, we can all have different views, but I think we've reached a stage with climate change where we know that there's a problem, it has to be handled, and, and it can't be a case of sort of appearing to ride two horses at the same time. It's not about just copying the other side for its own sake. Uh, a, this is a genuine issue that needs to be handled. Uh, but B, if you handle it properly in a political sense, you'll also neutralize it. You can move on to areas where you perceive you have an advantage over the other side. So there are both principled reasons and perhaps political reasons for, I think, dealing with the, 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 the issue. What I'm saying is that the structural factors have to be owned up to. They're hard to handle. Uh, they're not always issues where you see a short-term payoff. The electorate is conservative in the sense that if they vote a government in and the government is doing sort of okay, they won't just vote for the opposition because they think the opposition's got a flashy policy offering. If they're largely happy, the government won't lose office. But I think for its own long-term health, the, the coalition has to have that that introspection. Some people worry about the introspection being too public because it looks like you're being divisive, you're divided. <clears throat> but it's healthy to have an element of debate, real debate about what the future holds for a centre-right party uh, with the sort of values of Menzies and how you adapt those to the contemporary age. I think it was reported that when you were first, the idea of the ambassadorship to the United States was first floated to you in 2005, what made you decide that? And I think it was on the basis that you maybe didn't feel you were prepared or you didn't have enough experience to do it. When that second offer came through, what made you decide that you, you could do it? I, I guess I, I felt I had more experience under my belt. Also, I'd been through 
a period of being ill, which is why I'd stood down from the ministry. And when I came back from that, I sort of thought about, well, do I go back into the, I was offered a ministry, do I go back into the rigors of the ministry and political front line, or maybe given the near-death experience I had, I should just maybe, a bit unusual for me, just dial it down a bit. And and while I wasn't going to treat the ambassadorship as a sinecure or a, a cruise, cruising thing to do, I, I hoped that, that would lead to a more stable and and steady rhythm of life and with less stress and also with an opportunity to take the family with me. It didn't turn out that way. Washington's a funny, yeah, because Washington's a, a funny kind of spa retreat. It, it, it certainly is. It didn't turn out that way. It turned out to be, first of all, we were hit by COVID and then, you know, we had changes of administration, both in Washington and in Canberra. So I had plenty, plenty on. So it ended up being very busy, but in that sense, also very uh, rewarding. And, and you were there really through the uh, con- construction, let's say, of the, the whole AUKUS, uh, the, the major security pact uh, between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. How did that whole project kind of come together? How did you see it from its earliest days? Well, I mean, the then Prime Minister Morrison um, started to take an interest in where the previous submarine program was at and where it was going. I think we're starting to become concerned about elements of it. And at the same time, we'd also had the Defence Strategic Update in 2020, which suggested that some of the trends we're seeing in the region with the military build-ups, the increased tension, those trends were accelerating. And Australia had to do more than hitherto. And uh, he then initiated, um, and I remember being in on one or two discussions where he he was focused on the submarine program and, and asked for further work. And he initiated this work of looking at whether nuclear powered submarines were possible. Firstly, by backing off a British design, but then to do that, you had to have to crown jewels the U.S. nuclear-powered technology. So we had to engage the U.S. There was a Navy team in Washington at the embassy who who worked with the nuclear Navy here. The nuclear Navy was skeptical, you know, will you meet the high standards of nuclear stewardship that were required? I came into the process in uh, early, I think it was 2021, when we were starting to think about how we engage the broader U.S. administration. And once we were engaged with the strategic people, they took a very um, sanguine view about Australia's capacity to meet the high standards that were required because they saw this as having a big announcement effect in the region, Australia acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. It would add to the capability of allies and partners in the region. And this was not going to be a zero-sum deal. We weren't going to take stuff from the Brits and the Americans. This was going to be a net addition to the capacity in the region. And once the White House decided this was the way to go, the nuclear navy were brought around. And then the passage to announcing the agreement in September of 2021 opened up fairly, fairly easily in a way. There was a bit of a debate leading up to the announcement around how many potential designs or pathways would be considered, which is why the final documents talked about finding an optimal pathway. I think it's true to say that people in Washington, well, in the think tanks, they some of them describe it as a strategic masterstroke because they saw it as having an impact on the psychology of the region. We would become one of only six countries with nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, it was a big step up for Australia, and we were taking on a lot. The way I describe it to people is, and I described it to our colleagues, the Brits and the, the Americans, is that for us in Australia, it's like a moonshot, a whole of nation endeavor. It's a, it's a big transformation, and it ranks up there with the sort of clean energy transformation that we're trying to do at the moment. So uh, Australia sort of, if you look at Australia at the moment, there's a productivity challenge, right? Going back to the micro or structural stuff we talked about before, we, cert- we need to speed up our, our productivity growth. We need the epic 
clean energy transformation, which will cost a lot of money in itself. And then there's this defense transformation, which done properly will have major spillover benefits to other parts of the economy. So when people talk about the industrial benefits of AUKUS, I think there is something in that. And I think that it's important for us to see how we maximize those benefits, not in a mechanicalist, protectionist sort of a way, but in a way that the sort of tech transfer that we can have with the US and with Britain, um, the way we can integrate our industrial base with theirs, all of that can benefit to us having a stronger industry structure in Australia, much more of a smart manufacturing orientation. It's really up to us to shape those opportunities. What we've heard today in, in regards to what you've spoken about with, with AUKUS is that it seemed to have stemmed from a very specific question of technical military capability. And what we've seen is it becomes of such great importance to the presence of the United States the United, and the United Kingdom in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as, as you've described, Australia's moment to step up so was that anticipated from its earliest days? In its earliest days, it was always deliberately framed as a capability pact. It wasn't a new alliance. There was some criticism at the time that this was just the old Anglosphere getting back together again, the old band getting back together again. But the, the deliberate framing around capability pact was not to sort of try and then stray into all sorts of extraneous issues, uh, read stuff into it. But it's taken on a broader resonance because, particularly with the Labor government embracing and implementing AUKUS, a realization that uh, actually this is quite a big deal yeah. and we're going to be involved with this for decades. One of the American people I was speaking to um, after we agreed on all this said, oh, after this, you'll be married to us for decades. Uh, they certainly saw it as that sort of multi-decadal commitment, and and then it, it and in Australian public discourse, it AUKUS became a, a flashpoint for talking about our assumptions about our relationship with the U.S. and with China, and you saw from the debate that Paul Keating initiated that there was this strain of well, you know, I, are we making ourselves more vulnerable by doing this? Um, what does this say about having an independent foreign and security policy? Would we be better off with an independent foreign and security policy? And we have these debates from time to time, and Hugh White's been a great proponent of you know, sort of saying, well, the rise of China is inevitable, the decline of the US is, is perhaps inevitable as well, and we need to adjust to these new realities. But I think the first point is that the US itself sees itself as a, political, as a Pacific power. So they're not going anywhere. We derive great benefits from the alliance structure that we're part of, both ANZUS and also the Five Eyes and the rest. We could not hope to replicate those benefits if we went alone, unless we were willing to spend a whole lot more money than the Australian population is willing to spend. And also, in, in relation to, to China, I think... The, the approach we're taking here is that with allies and partners, we're seeking through our actions to influence China's perceptions about the costs and benefits of unilateral measures as opposed to working creatively as part of the global rules-based order. Yes, adapting it to the rise of countries like China uh. and India and others, but seeking to encourage them to be part of that order rather than seeking to turn that order on its head and seek to re recreate it in their own image. Uh, and there's a very live debate that goes on in Washington between those who think, even though these days the number of people who are active supporters of China, for example, in the Congress is, is essentially zero, but there is a bit of a debate around what is, what is the best way. Is, is the best way to, in effect, go back towards more of a Cold War situation and sort of decoupling across the board? Is that even realistic in a world where China is so integrated into global supply chains. And against that view is the view that by engaging with China, and this is where I think the Biden administration is at the moment, engaging with China, we seek to put some guardrails, as they're called, on the relationship and try and understand each other's red lines better. And this is no more 
important, no more important place for this than Taiwan. Understand each other's red lines, respect those, find areas where cooperation is possible, uh, and, and go from there. And I think that's where President Biden is at the moment. So he's looking to have a bit more of a constructive relationship than maybe the Trump yeah. administration had with China. Except at the same time that the US is still moving to contain engagement in some areas of critical and emerging technologies like semiconductors, parts of AI, quantum, cyber, and the rest. The economic sovereignty. But we, yeah. we spoke before about how you know, we have a, a situation where the two different poles, let's say in a, in a political scape, each push in the same direction. And it seems like in the politics of the United States, the attitude towards China is, is pushing to something that's far more, I'd say, antagonistic. That is most, I think, demonstrated with how the, a lot of the rhetoric towards China introduced by um, Donald Trump's administration has, to an extent, continued under the Democrats. Yeah. Yeah, surely, with a different tone, a different tan, but it's, it's continued nonetheless. There's a lot of continuity on the China policy side. I mean, under Trump, he was mainly focused on trade, but his administration moved on a series of, of issues to tighten the relationship with, with Beijing. And that's essentially continued under this administration. One of the big differences is that this administration put a lot more focus on how it works with allies and partners. And while Australia didn't, uh, do too badly out of the Trump administration. A lot of allies and partners were not treated well. There was issues between Korea and Japan, issues around NATO, and that weakened the Western alliance as a whole. One of the great achievements of Joe Biden has been to revitalize those relationships. He did that in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war, particularly in Europe around NATO, and he's done that in the Indo-Pacific. And, and part of what I was trying to do in my time there was help encourage the U.S. to institutionalize its involvement in the Indo-Pacific. So we had the pivot under Obama. We needed that to be reinforced, doubled down on. And that's where we've been keen to focus on the Quad Leaders meeting, AUKUS, Partners of the Blue Pacific, uh, the initiatives the US is taking with the Pacific Islands itself and with the ASEAN countries through the various summits and the programs that follow from those. So we were keen to reinforce the, the role in the institutional sense of, of the U.S. in the, in the Indo-Pacific and, of course, on the economic side through the Indo-Pacific economic framework. Now, one question I really wanted to ask is that <laughs> what is it like meeting the, these U.S. presidents? Because you, you came in, I think, during the, the Trump administration, yeah. which means you would, have, you would have dealt with him with some, and then yes. next with, with Biden. What's it like dealing with them, with them personally? I'll start with Trump. Um, I went to present my credentials. He was very friendly. He wanted to talk about the bushfires then raging in Australia. He had some theories that they'd been caused by people leaving too much stuff on the floors of the national parks, you know, so they weren't being cleaned up enough. Uh, I tried to get him off that because the cameras were starting to roll. But he was very, he, he was very friendly towards Australia. He had a number of Australian friends like Greg Norman. And so, um, from an Australian perspective, including before I got there, people like Greg Norman were ways of getting to the president in, in a way that he sort of understood. If I remembered, it was through Greg Norman that Mark Turnbull had to obtain Trump's number after he won his victory to, in order to congratulate him because no one had Trump's number at the time. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Because in Australia at the time, they hadn't expected Trump to win. They thought, well, he's offended so many interest groups, surely he's going to lose. But you're absolutely right. Joe Biden, I was with him uh, close up at the Pacific Island Summit last year. He spent two hours engaging with the, the Pacific Island leaders, very much on top of his brief, very involved with them, took them to the White House for dinner, um, spent an hour and a half showing them around the Oval Office, explaining the history of some of the stuff in there. Um, he likes to talk. Like once he gets oh. going, he loves to tell stories. And when he saw Anthony Albanese in San Diego, when they were doing their bilateral, he talked a bit about his own background in Scranton, in Pennsylvania, about the, uh, the miners there uh, who set up the Molly Maguires, who would take down the, the mine managers because of all the abuse of miners occurring on, on the coal fields and all the rest of it. Um, 
he always harks back a lot to his Irishness. That's one of the things that established a strong connection between Biden and Albanese. Both of them have that sort of Irish Catholic background and hard scrabble sort of upbringing. I, I found I found the president this this president. Look, uh, people say that he's uh, you know he can be a bit slow and all the rest of it. I, I didn't find him slow at all. He was across his brief. He had pretty strong views on what he thought should happen when he met. Albanese in San Diego, uh, he he spent a lot of time talking about his views about how the China relationship should be handled, for example. He, don't forget, he's been around for 50 years or so, right? And a lot of that on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and there's indeed as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. So he's met everybody and there's just a huge knowledge there. And I was very impressed with the way he carried himself on on all of that. Previous to my time as ambassador, I'd met Clinton in Australia and in the US. The thing about Clinton that I particularly remember is we were at the White House for lunch and he and Al Gore were there and it was around the time that East Timor was blowing up as an issue. And we had with us our former ambassador to Indonesia, Philip Flood, and a lot of the lunch was Clinton absorbing everything that Philip had to say about Indonesia and East Timor. And when he focused on someone, it was la- Clinton, it was laser-like. Like that was the only person in the room. And you could see him absorbing the information. And I was very impressed with his recall and then how he put stuff together. This guy, you know, really, he, could, he was like blotting paper. He could just take it all in and you could see it going round uh, in his mind. I met George Bush later at the White House, but also at Crawford in Texas at his ranch, which I thought was going to be a ranch with cattle and all the rest of it, but they were growing oak trees, I think. Um, but, it, but it was great to see him. He was very relaxed in that environment, but very, but very much a Texan. Loved going around in his cowboy boots, which he wore in the White House as well. So within your, your time in, in Washington, what did you discover about U.S. politics? Particularly the last few years with the Trump factor, it's been, it's usually high stakes, but the stakes were higher than all because it raised questions about the future of US democracy. And I saw the stress and strain that the institutions were put under in that election year. And they they came through, they were resilient, but it was, it felt like a near run thing. The advertisements that they run in American politics, you could never get away with in Australia. They're just so tough on opponents. The other thing that, that came to, through to me about American politics is that there are no go zones. Like doing something about guns seems to be just beyond them, uh, even though a lot of people accept that something's got to be done. Regulating big tech is not so much a no go zone, but the, the, the two sides have a lot of trouble working out exactly what to do because the, the conservatives come at it as an issue of. Um, the platforms are all liberals. They've got to guarantee free speech. So we conservatives, right of center people, get a fair shake. The the liberals, the Democrats and others think, well, there's got to be regulation to make sure that we don't have hate speech. That that you know, we try and they have debates on on media that yeah, you know, to some extent we've resolved in Australia. We've tried to find a balance in the regulation of the media, but in the U.S. there are just these certain issues where they don't. They don't actually, policy doesn't seem to really come together. Defense and China are two areas where policy does seem to come together and there's more bipartisanship, even though at the moment, obviously, we've got the debates over the debt ceiling and the like. Often, they would say you only really know where you come from once you've left it. Having then been to Washington, what did you feel like you learned about how the Australian parliament functions and how our politics is is unique? Well, I think it, it sort of reinforced my support for things like compulsory voting. Make sure as many yeah. people as possible vote. You get the best possible representation of community views. In the US, you have to sort of galvanize the vote. It's, it's voluntary. Um, there's a lot more politicization of electoral processes in the US. In Australia, we have independent electoral commissions to do a lot of that. In the US, every position from dog catcher up is a political position. And, and, and I just think, not that there should be limits on politics or whatever, but 
Australia, it's made me feel that Australia struck a pretty good balance in a lot of these sort of areas. That doesn't mean that Australia is perfect, but I think we've done some things well in our constitutional arrangements and the way we implement the rule of law in this country uh, a part of that process. There's a big difference between how Australians, well, what the relationship is between Australians and their constitutions and a citizen of the United States and their constitution. What kind of difference do you see? Well, I think the first difference is they're a lot more conscious of the constitution in the US. I think in many ways, even though the Australian constitution lays the basis and fundamentals for our governance, if you like, and is therefore very important, you're much more aware of the Constitution in the US because it's more sort of referenced. The First Amendment on free speech, the Second Amendment on um, carriage of guns and all the rest of it, for example. There's a lot more focus on um, the Supreme Court, who's on the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court will decide. The Supreme Court in recent times, unfortunately, has become a, a real political playground. We saw that with the Roe v. Wade decision uh. being overturned. Now, I don't have a brief for one side of the argument or the other, except to say that in pragmatically in Australia, we found a way through issues like that, and we've sort of tried to settle them. Here in the US, there's been a bit of a movement to try and unstitch some of the precedents of the last 40 or 50 years, including this one, uh, and that creates, I think, quite a febrile sort of atmosphere. So the Supreme Court sort of looms very large in the public consciousness and in the political arena. I, I think part of the difference is that, you know, we were handed our constitution. They, they fought and created their constitution. And also their constitution intersects with the, the, the other great issue of American life, which is race. Because, of course, the mm -hmm. constitution set out voting requirements and, 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 all, and who could vote and who couldn't vote. And... Um, if you had so many slaves, what that meant in terms of votes, a particular state got and all the rest of it. But my, my point being, this, this intersection of issues has sort of animated American life ever since. How do you think Australia is viewed in the United States and even across the world? I, I think in the US, there's great goodwill towards Australia on the personal level. The people-to-people -people links are very strong and very warm. When I came over here, the bushfires were still raging. Everybody was asking me about them. They were quite concerned. We did a survey of opinion makers in Washington last year, and the the, the opinions about Australia, sort of at, in, in in sort of influential policy making circles, were along the lines of uh, what a you know a strong ally, a frictionless relationship. They perceived us as strong in areas like mining and energy, and now critical minerals, which is so important for the future. They didn't rate us as highly as some other allies and partners in terms of science and innovation, even though I think we have a good story to tell there. Condi Rice was asked last year somewhere who was America's best ally. She said Australia because, you know, when there's a problem, they say we got this. We understand and we want to help. And I think it goes to the fact that like the US, almost all the wars we fought in, I mean, World War II had an element of national survival in it, but we were in all of these wars because we were upholding a certain view about the global rules-based order. And we, we share these, many of these values in common. I think Americans sense that at, at, at various levels of their society. And that animates, in part, their positive view of Australia. We're, we're talking with um, Greg Barnes tomorrow, one of the uh, senior counsel to, to Julian Assange. Give him my regards. We used to work together. Sure, I will. But the, the extradition of, of Julian Assange to the United States from the United Kingdom covers all the, all the key three players. It's an AUKUS issue. It, it is, really. It's, it's another, another nuclear, yes. <laughs> nuclear device there. So how was that... Uh, what, what kind of activity did you, did you see within the embassy uh, we were dealing with the Assange case? Well, I, I think under the new government, the view was taken that this issue had fisted for a long time and should be brought to a head. Um, and this was a view that was shared by the prime minister and the foreign minister and obviously others in the government, but I most was exposed to the views of the PM and the foreign minister. And they made sure both personally and in other ways that that message was delivered to the Americans. And 
I'm not privy to what's happened since I stood down, but I've no doubt that the government is continuing to work out a, a way through this issue. It's quite complex and it's not easy for the Americans, um, particularly when it involves judicial processes and potential involvement in those processes. So I think we've got a way to go yet on, on, on that process. And I can't really talk much more about it. Awesome. Well, I think that, that spills the end uh, for the podcast. Thank you. Arthur, thank you. And uh, see Thanks. you later.